if you have your Bible, please go with me to Exodus 34. We are two weeks away from finishing our series in the book of Exodus, which is hard to believe. We've been in this book for a long time. It's been a really good time. We're also 12 weeks away from everybody at the, down t- or excuse me, at the East Campus joining us here. So if you haven't processed that lately, uh, you're probably looking around the room today and thinking, oh, we have plenty of seats, no big deal. Uh, there's another 50 or so people who are at the East Campus, and they're going to be coming here in June. We'll meet here all together, one service at 11 o'clock, excuse me, at 9.15, at 9.15, at 9.15, uh, in June, all four Sundays. And then in July, we will be at Cuddy Family Park in Midtown uh, all together as well. So just prepare yourselves for that if you can. There will be some new faces that are in some ways old faces, and it'll be really exciting. Um, And we're making progress over there, too. Yesterday, a team of us were able to gut the whole office suite at the East Campus. We did about 49 man-hours of work yesterday, and uh, we got it stripped down to not not the studs, but nearly, nearly the studs. So we're excited about being able to build that back up and give our staff a place where they can get good work done. Okay, that said, let's start reading in verse 1 of Exodus 34 today. You'll remember that we are back in the narrative portion of Scripture, so this is going to be a conversation between Moses and God. The Lord... His name is Yahweh. He said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, just like the first set. So remember, a couple of chapters ago, God instructed Moses to cut two tablets in the famous old Charlton Heston film. They're sort of shaped like tombstones, but they could be any old shape. They had to be pretty big because they contained all the fullness of God's law that he'd given to Moses in verbal form. And when Moses came down the mountain in Exodus 32 and saw the way that God's people had sinned, he broke them. He threw them down. Because the covenant was broken. There was no need to to keep this sort of false pretense of law between God and his people. His people had already made it clear they had no intention of keeping the law. So Moses has now approached God a second time, asked for forgiveness, and God's response is, okay, create two new stone tablets. Verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there. Present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So just a couple of notes here for you to give you some context. I hope this helps. You'll remember that the way that the tabernacle was built, if you were here those few weeks that we handled the, the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the courtyard, all the curtains and basins and things like that, it's a representation of this experience on the mountain. So God's doing the same thing that he's done from the beginning of how he's interacted with his people in Exodus. He's picking one person, in this case it's Moses again, to ascend all the way to the holiest place on the mountain. That's why God goes out of his way to communicate it needs to only be you. It's a direct parallel to what he's doing in the tabernacle, saying to the high priest, only you, high priest, may come all the way in. There is one mediator. That's what we should notice. Now, I think it's very interesting, if you're really processing this, some of us, I think, are, we have this like special Sunday school trained category of like Bible reading in our head where we can just turn it off. We don't even really know what's going on. We saw all the words, but it, we're, we're just numb. So if I can draw this out for you a little bit, I think this is almost funny. God just told Moses he has one night to carve two new stone tablets. I have never carved a stone tablet. I would imagine it would take me more than one evening to do that. I don't know. And then in the morning, he doesn't even get to take a nap. He has to pick them up and carry them up to the top of the mountain and hike it again. This man is well over 80 years old. He's probably closer to 90 at this point in his life, and he has to carve two huge chunks of stone, put them under his arms, because the Bible tells us in verse 4 that he took them in his hands, which is funny, he like barehanded them, and that he has to climb all the way up this mountain. Um, When I was in college, a guy in a class with me tried to use this passage of scripture to prove to me that CrossFit is biblical. That happened. 
And even if he was right, not a great sales pitch. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, people are not getting in line to carve stone tablets and carry them up a mountain. Maybe some of you do. Anyway, that aside, look at verse 4. Moses did what God told him. This is a real serious, significant feat of strength. This is an investment for this man who's probably pretty spiritually exhausted after the ups and downs of the last couple of days. Moses cut two tablets of stone, just like the first ones. He did what God told him. And he got up early in the morning, and he went up onto Mount Sinai, just as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And then Yahweh did what he said he would do. He descended in the cloud, and he stood with Moses there, and he proclaimed his own name. He said to Moses, Yahweh is here. Very interesting. Look at verse 6. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before Moses, and as he did, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God keeping steadfast love for thousands, or another way to translate that is to the thousandth generation, a God forgiving iniquity, a God forgiving transgression, a God forgiving sin, but a God who will by no means clear the guilty, and a God who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't know if you still have your Exodus Scripture Journal or not. You may be back in your paper Bible or you may be scrolling on your phone. Whatever is fine. If you have a way to highlight, circle, underline what we just read, verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, you should make note of that. And I'm not a write-in-your-Bible guy. I'm not big on filling my Bible up with notes. I sort of think God got it right. He doesn't necessarily need me to write anything in there. However, this is a big deal because we just read the gospel in the second book of the Bible. What we just read is God indicating his heart, indicating, making it clear. He's been the exact same since the beginning of time. Think about what he says. He says that he is gracious. He says that he is merciful he uses the word steadfast to describe his love, a word that we don't use often, and frankly, we have no real concept of what it means to be steadfast in our culture. We, things change so rapidly, we don't really even know what it means to wait on something. What God is communicating is that it takes him a really long time to get angry. He doesn't snap at people. He doesn't just explode. He doesn't carry around this sort of charged up, I had a bad day and you better not cross me energy that some of us live with. God is patient. He can endure a lot before his anger comes to the surface. This means that God's love is not flaky, like our love is flaky. God's love is not petty, like our love is petty. God's love is not rooted in emotion. He is faithful. That means that he does what he says every single time that he says that he'll do it. He follows through. He has never not followed through. He has never failed his people. And then this is what's wild to me, is that love is not just a thing that's true about him that we can learn and know factually in our headspace. This is the love that God offers to humanity. It's that strength of relationship. It's mind-blowing to me. Our love for each other is flimsy a lot of times. It's sort of skin deep. It changes. We move our affection from person to person, especially if you're unmarried but you feel like you should be and you're, trying to, you're in this weird mill of like dating people rapidly and you're having to try to imagine yourself marrying a person but you can't really do it yet because that's weird to start with a marriage in your relationship, right? You should probably wait till you know that person. But we just sort of train ourselves to move our affections on to the next best thing. Whether we broke the relationship or it was broken against our will, we just sort of have to like take a deep breath, cry, eat a pint of ice cream, and find the next person. And God doesn't do that to us. He never puts us in a position where we have to find somebody to move our affections to. Do you know that about your God? 
God never betrays us in a way where we have to find someone next. Once you find God, there is no next. You don't need anybody past that point. I'm not saying don't be in a relationship, don't get married, don't have friends. I'm saying at your core, the thing that you're looking for, the weight of your soul that you'd like to offer to another person and to be able to trust that they might actually take care of you with that level of access, only God can handle that well. Only God will not break your fragile soul. And then in addition to being deep love, it's a forgiving love. And it's a a forgiving love not of people who've done little things once or twice. God is saying here that he forgives people who do horrible things to him and to each other. He's willing to do that. It's within his character. You understand that in these verses, God is not trying to share something new with Moses. If you were to go 30 chapters back in Exodus to the very first time that Moses encountered Yahweh, before Moses knew his name, Moses is a shepherd, he's in his late 40s, he's run from his past. Up on a mountainside, a bush bursts into flame, but is not burning up. Moses freaks out, walks over to see what's going on with that, because you and I would too. We'd pull our cell phone out first, but either way, we're going to walk over and figure out what that's about. And then a voice comes out of the bush, and God introduces himself by using his name. He is, in essence, saying, it's me, Moses. I know we just went through a lot. And I know you and your people have a lot of doubt and fear right now, but I'm still me. I'm still here. I'll still be close. Think about these words, these older words that we don't use that much, that God is using to define how he is forgiving. God says first that he'll forgive iniquity. If you're married or in a relationship, you probably haven't accused your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend of iniquity in a long time. I don't know. Maybe you guys talk in King James language. You love Shakespeare. That's your thing. That's fine. But what that means is, iniquity means all of the ways that we give ourselves advantages that we would never give to other people. That's what God's talking about. That general sense of unfairness that's baked into the human psyche. That we scream and cry and protest when life's not fair to us, but we don't mind when life's not fair to other people as long as it gives us a leg up. That's in our identity. You go back to Genesis 3, and that is part of what's at the root of the enticing aroma of sin that the serpent introduces to Eve. What if God is wrong? What if you could know better? What if you could be stronger? What if you could have something you don't have that no one has? Would you be willing to do it? Would you do it in secret to give yourself that advantage? All of the unfairness that we create in the lives of other people in order to get what we want, iniquity is immorality, it's partiality, prejudice, bias. God forgives that. God can look at a person who's willingly tipped the scales in their favor and done so in a way that is wrong, and he can say, I love you anyway. How's that for love? Hmm? You know what I'd be tempted to do is I'd be tempted to say, make it right, and then we'll talk. Fix that, go back, change it, and then maybe there can be a relationship between you and I. God says that he forgives transgression. This is breaking the God-given natural order of things. The consciousness that we have that is relatively aware of right and wrong, good and evil. I think we come out of the womb to some degree able to distinguish, most of us able to distinguish what is generally good for us and others and what is generally bad for us and others. God is talking about things that show up more on a society level when we think of transgression, things like theft where we steal an item from someone that doesn't belong to us or rape where we take an experience from someone that they didn't offer us or any kind of exploitation of other people as property and you can go all the way from the Caribbean slave trade to the modern sex slave trade. When you choose to take advantage of a system or um, an appetite or uh, even an opportunity that God may have put in front of you out of the order in which he has offered it, 
then you have transgressed, you have trespassed against his general rule for the world. Transgression is like trespassing. And Yahweh goes out of his way to help us with this. He offers us clear boundaries. He helps us understand if we would stay in bounds, our lives would be so much better. And yet, over and over again, our life is a series of jumping that cosmic fence to get into the field next door, to get into something that God has not offered us yet, a thing that looks good, but we want it now, even though God says to wait till his timing is different. And then finally, he uses a word that we've heard a lot of times, sin. And sin is what it sounds like, direct, blatant rebellion against God that, that disregards his will on purpose. To say there is no God, or to say if there is, I don't care about him, or I'm so mad at him for what he's done that I will never obey him. Even sometimes I think we justify decisions in our lives because we go, well, this situation that I'm in isn't explicitly in the Bible, and so God must not care about it. Well, that's a pretty weak argument. Oftentimes, though, if I can just boil this down for you, and this is a little bit crude, but I think it summarizes exactly how we live when we've willingly embraced our sin, it is a middle finger to God lifestyle. That's what we're saying to him. Take this. This is what I think of you. This is what I think of your way. This is what I think of your will. I will go my own way. It's blatant. Whereas transgression is following my appetite out of good and right living into a kind of living that's out of bounds, sin is a willingness to just do it, to just jump in head first and go, I'll do whatever I want. And these are the three categories, not that God is indicting his people of. Do you hear me, church? This is not a list of all the reasons they should feel guilty. These are the three categories of sin that it is within his character to forgive every time. How much better is he than you? He's certainly far better than I am. If I could offer this kind of love to another person, I'm trying, right? Aren't we as Christians? We want to learn from him, but we have no hope if we don't start with a relationship with him first. He is the source material for real and true forgiveness and forgiveness doesn't just mean that you are let off the hook, that God looks the other way or he ignores what you've done. Forgiveness means that the guilt is removed. And this is another big difference, I think, between what God means when he says forgiveness and oftentimes what we mean when we say the word forgiveness in a relationship. The way that we translate in verse 7 uh, the word forgiving when God is speaking about himself, I think it might be better understood to mean removing or taking away, when he says, I'll forgive their sins, I think a better way to read that is, I will remove their sins. It's not just that you get out from underneath the penalty that you've earned, you get to skip your trip to the galactic principal's office <laughs> to have to sit down with God and explain what you did. God will actually remove the guilt. You no longer deserve the punishment when God's forgiveness has done its work in your life. For you and I, when we forgive someone, it's hard work for us to get rid of that mental footage that we keep of the thing that happened that hurt us so badly, right? It's tough to flush that and get it gone. But for God, his will is to forgive and to be able to interact with us in that way. To forgive someone is to choose to keep no record of their wrong, and this is what God is saying to Moses as just an introduction. I know it's long, but you can imagine this as God's name tag that he's wearing here for this meeting that he's about to have with Moses. He's saying, bare minimum, these are all the things you need to know about me if we're gonna interact. This is not me just singing my praises and, and boosting my ego and making me a bigger deal than I should be. This is like the most distilled version of me that I can offer you. And I still have to take all this time to explain that I'm forgiving and that I don't hold a grudge and that anybody who wants forgiveness can have it. And once you're forgiven, your guilt is removed. These are the things that God is saying. But that's also why, if you, we can't ignore this, beginning in verse 7, that God says that he won't look the other way on the wrongdoing of what he calls the guilty. Now, it may seem confusing to you. It may seem like God is offering you something nice, but then he's coming in to just kind of surprise 
sucker punch you along the way. Because if you're like me, I read this and I go, if I have to pick a category, I probably fall into the column labeled the guilty. Pretty sure that's me. So does this mean that the God that I try to worship on Sundays and every other day of the week when I meet with him and open his word, is he out to get me? Is he really going to punish my children and grandchildren for the things that I've done wrong? Here's what you need to understand. When God is categorically talking about the guilty, he's defining a kind of person, a whole lifestyle. You just heard him say, if you want to be forgiven, you can be. That's who he is. He's the forgiver. He's the first forgiver ever, anywhere. The guilty are a category of people who don't want that. The guilty are a category of people who have said, I like the things that make me guilty. I'd like to keep them. I'd like to continue to participate in them, and I'll deal with the guilt. And God is saying, you're right. You will deal with the guilt. And not only will you deal with the guilt, your children will suffer because of your decisions. And your grandchildren will suffer because of your decisions. It doesn't mean that those generations are irredeemable. Don't misunderstand. God is still saying what he is saying. He's still forgiving. If you are choosing to maintain guilt, to not surrender, to not apologize, to not repent, but to say to God, I will do it my way, my way is better than your way, that's going to affect your kids. It's going to put them on a very bad trajectory. It's going to teach and train and form them into people who are not like Christ. But it doesn't mean they're outside of his will or his grace at all. It means that they're just going to have to come to him without your help, which is somewhat of a tragedy in some ways. You heard Dave mention earlier, we want to reach people like that. We want to see people who we would consider to be first-generation Christians find Jesus. But the story that you'll hear when you are with a first-generation Christian, when they become a first-generation Christian, is all of the damage and the pain that they carried because their parents weren't Christians. The legacy that we inherit doesn't have to define us, but it certainly influences who we become. We talked about that last week when we dealt with our wounds. What God is trying to communicate is, if you're that selfish that you really can't see past the end of your own spiritual nose to the point that you would say to me, God, I'll do it my way and you can have all this law and grace and mercy junk that you talk about. God is trying to say to that category of person, it's not just going to affect you. This is bigger than whether or not you've rejected me because you think you're smarter than me. This will affect you and your children and your grandchildren. It is a wake-up call. This is not a threat. It is a warning from God to his people. He will not turn his back on iniquity or transgression or sin, but he will forgive those who have said, forgive me, God. Have mercy on me. He will take the guilt, and instead he will offer love and support and a committed relationship, which is so healing when you've grown up in a place where you've never had those things. When the people who raised you were never connected to God in a way where they could offer you real selfless love. What an amazing experience to finally have that craving for acceptance, that longing to find a home forever to be satisfied. That's what God can do for you. So how does Moses respond? This is a pretty big deal. Verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head. Boom. He's not stiff-necked. <laughs> I think that's what he's trying to demonstrate. God spent all this time accusing his people of being stiff-necked. Moses is like, not me. I'm down here, God, where I belong. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped God. Because this is an amazing thing to find out about the God that you thought might kill you when you climbed the mountain. I'm just saying, the last time Moses and God spoke, God was pretty angry. He was ready to go down the mountain and mess the Israelites up permanently. God has now returned to his presence. It's been a very long night, if we remember how the story began. And when God says, I am abounding with steadfast love and I forgive and my forgiveness goes out to the thousandth generation, Moses just hits his knees. I think our, our good friend Moses is somewhat at the end of his rope. 
he says from this low posture with his head bowed toward the earth, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, God, if, if, he doesn't even presume, please, same request, let the Lord go in the midst of us. Why? Because the people are not stiff-necked anymore, right? They learn their lesson. No, Moses says, because they are a stiff-necked people and pardon their iniquity. The things you just said, God, do those things. That's all I want you to be. Pardon their sin and take us to be your inheritance. We want the covenant, God. We're sorry. It's very interesting, isn't it, that God introduces the concept of being stiff-necked in, verse, in chapter 32 when he's really frustrated with his people. He's angry at their sin because they've wronged him. And then Moses embraces that language. He even uses it to communicate with the people. He talks to Aaron in that way. But now Moses seems to understand that the people being stiff-necked and rebellious is not actually a good reason for God to keep his distance. It's the very reason they need him in their midst. If he doesn't go with them, they're not going to become less stiff-necked by being distant from him. Moses is saying to God, we need you to dwell in our midst. If you won't be forgiving like this, we don't have another hope. And with that concept put on the table, Moses has now read and diagnosed every one of us in this room. If God is not willing to be near to us, we have no other hope. I'll say it to you a little more pointedly than that. If God is not willing to be near you, if your greatest fear actually is right, that you are too dirty and God can't forgive you, if that comes true, you have no other hope. Your life is already over. There's nowhere you can go. There's not a pleasure that you can tap that will somehow tip those scales in a way that you can ignore that reality. It will haunt you. Moses knows that. Moses has certainly lived long enough to understand that the fleeting pleasures of the world cannot fill the, the cup of your soul. They can't. And so he says to God, please be with us. I can hear him saying, Yahweh, we're wounded. You saw what the people did when they sensed that you were far away. It wasn't good. <laughs> they made the calf. They went morally insane. We need you among us. And so God responds in verse 10. He says to Moses, behold, I am making a covenant. That's a very important word. In front of all of your people, I will do marvels. So he's, he's now saying to Moses, yes, I'll be near to you. And I will do things such as have not been created in all of the earth. So you can think of places like Alaska, which at this point in history have no people. So there's just miles and miles and miles of nature just existing in these cycles that God set up simply for his own glory. The sun is rising, snow is falling, it's melting, animals are born, they eat each other, there's new animals. All of this is happening and no one's even seen it. God is saying, I'll do things better and more important than that, but also I will do things that no nation has ever seen. What I'm going to do won't just exceed the natural order that people aren't even aware of. What I'm going to do will be a bigger deal than what human beings have experienced up to this point. And think of the pretty significant things that have happened on the earth. Things like a global flood, a tower of Babel built high enough that God scattered the people of the earth in response. Massive movements in Egypt that have probably spread like wildfire. Word of these things has reached every other nation in the ancient Near East of how these slave people rebelled and there was blood in the river and all the frogs died and then one night everybody's firstborn passed away. And God is saying, there's more ahead, and it's bigger than this. So yes, Moses, I will go with you. And then, beginning in verse 10 there, and on through verse 26, is God restating parts of his covenant that he's already shared. In chapters 20 through 24, we read all of the exhaustive law that God gave his people about how to exist among their enemies, how to live in an ancient Near Eastern context, and know how to do God's will. And so God seems to sort of pick an odd handful of those laws to reiterate 
as part of restating the covenant here in chapter 34. The question I'm left with when I read these is why pick these laws? Are these God's favorite laws? Are these the greatest hits out of chapters 20 through 24? What do breaking down idols and keeping a pretty obscure feast and breaking donkey's necks have to do with each other? Why would God bring these things up? Are these the most important? The common thread through these laws is that they all protect Israel's identity. That's what God's doing. The foundation of the covenant, the reason it has meaning in the life of his people is it changes who they are. They are no longer who they were without God. We saw who they are. We saw the kinds of decisions that they make two chapters ago when they think that they have no God in their midst. They make a new one and then they go crazy and they end up doing all kinds of stuff that defiles them to the point that their enemies are mocking them. They become tabloid news because of the way that they've jumped in head first to their own wickedness. So God is saying, instead of doing it that way, we tried that, didn't we? Didn't go so well. We're gonna do it my way. And if you'll do these things specifically, all of the law still stands, but these are the things that will remind you that you are not just another nation on earth. You are my people in my nation that I have established. God begins his reintroduction of the covenant by reminding his people that his salvation has called them out and made them distinct from the other peoples of the earth. He says, again, in common language, when you can clearly see me and where you clearly see me at work, I will do things that have never happened on earth and that no other nation has witnessed. Every country has their own narrative. You probably know this. We have heroes in our own collective history as Americans. All that uh, Israel has is Yahweh. They don't have a George Washington. They don't have an Abraham Lincoln or a Frederick Douglass, or in more modern terms, maybe a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg who sort of steered their zeitgeist. They just have Yahweh. Yahweh is the source of the stories that shape their national identity. He's saying to them, I will do the things for you that you need done in order to be formed into my people forever. I will do the work. Because God's relationship with his people is a covenant. That's the word that he used. I am making a covenant with you. It may help you to think of a covenant less in terms of an employment relationship. This is often what we default to, especially when we feel guilty. We think that our floor boss, God, is going to come by and see that we haven't done terribly well with our Christian responsibilities, and he's going to dock our pay or fire us. We get nervous about that. That's not a good analogy for the way that we relate to God. God has chosen to treat us as his bride. The language the Bible uses for covenant is marriage language over and over again. Even in verses 15 and 16, human unfaithfulness in this chapter is compared to adultery because God sees his covenant relationship with his people to be like a marriage, a marriage that's full of binding promises that stay strong when the emotional connection is weak or even gone, binding promises that keep both people close when they really just want to run to their own corner of the house and ignore one another, binding promises that keep the marriage alive when one person or the other has done their absolute best to kill it off. That's the value of a covenant. We are bound to God by promises like that. And it's reassuring to you and I. A covenant like that should be a great source of peace for us, not a cold, calculating part of Christian history, but a real and vibrant connection point, a bridge between us and God. We find reassurance because, newsflash, if you didn't know this, you will doubt that God loves you at some point. If you haven't yet, it's coming for you. It will, and it'll probably happen more than once between here and your deathbed. You'll probably even doubt whether he exists a handful of times based on how you feel and your circumstances. The covenant will stay strong even when you are weak. The covenant will stay present between you and God even when you want to run. The covenant will keep you connected to God even when you feel like you don't even know if he's real. This is a beautiful and powerful thing, and the covenant 
in Exodus 34 is an especially powerful covenant because it's a follow-up to a covenant that was just broken. God is having the kind of conversation that a man and woman have to have when one of them just found out that the other was cheating. This is the moment when they decide if they will go forward together or not. And Israel, by way of Moses, are on their knees in the living room, pleading, pleading with God, I won't do it again, I won't do it again. The difference between a man and a woman who have to decide if they're going to keep their relationship alive and God and his people is that a man and a woman don't actually know if that wrongdoing will crop back up again, if it really was a one-time weakness or if it's indicative of a trend. God knows that it will happen again. (laughs) There's not even a question of whether we'll be able to muscle up and figure it out and never turn our backs on him again. We will do those things. We will try hard and we will fail extravagantly. And yet he stays. He chooses to stay. He chooses to keep us close. It's realer and better and stronger than any kind of commitment that we could make to each other. And it's about mercy. It's not just a covenant of love. It's a covenant that's built and founded on forgiveness because that's what God's people needed to even be able to enter into this conversation. So I want to ask you a real practical question today. If you would say that you are a disciple of Jesus, and if we can assume that if that's true for you, you believe that prayer is real and that God listens to you and that covenant promises do bind you to him and to the other members of his church, how frequently... If at all, do you actually ask God for mercy like this? Is a prayer like Moses is praying, an approach to God where your hands are empty, all that you have to bring him is the wrongdoing that you've stacked up in your life for the last few hours or days or weeks? Do you have regular intervals where there's no petition, there's no specific plan that you have in mind that you're recommending to God and just hoping that he'll sign off on the bottom of? Are there moments where you just open yourself on every level and say to God, I have nothing. You must save me. I am in a position where I am going to die or fail or something significant in my life is going to fracture or shatter and I can't solve this problem and I don't have a plan and there's no way for this to make sense and I can't do anything, so have mercy on me. Do you pray the prayers of drowning people? Because here's what I know as your pastor, you are drowning. I don't think I've had a conversation with anybody in the last 24 months where they've said, man, things are better than ever. And it's been easy, and life is slowing down really nicely. We have all these extra days in the week now where we have a bunch of free time and we get to do fun stuff that we've wanted to do forever and ever. No, all of us are fighting hard against our bills and our obligations and our responsibilities and sometimes our own family just to keep our head above water. Not to mention the inner angst that we live with where we suffer simply because we feel the wrong way about things or we want the wrong kinds of things and we feel guilty because we know God doesn't want that for our lives. We are a people who know what it's like to not be able to get our head above water and inhale. And the prayer that fits that situation is the prayer of Moses. It's a cry for mercy. It's not asking God to tweak and tune what you have going on. It's saying to him, I have nothing I need you to do this for me. What you may have forgotten, because you may have learned bad habits from church people, is that God actually really likes that kind of prayer. He welcomes it. The New Testament has themes in it that are hard to understand when we feel like things are going well. Themes like that God is strong when we're weak. What does that mean? We would never want to put ourselves in a position of weakness, right? So we consider that a sort of consolation prize. God's strength is what we go home with if we get all the questions wrong on the prices right, right? We've still got something. We get a little rotary phone from the 70s. That's God's mercy. When in reality, 
the fullness of experience that's on the table for you and I depends on us being weak. If we're going to know God to the fullest, we have to have really bad days to do that. And if you want to trace the theology of that, let's meet for coffee. We don't have time today, but I believe that's a direct result of the fall, and it is exemplary of God's mercy in our lives, that there is a fullness of experience with him that we can have even when we have nothing else. So here's where we'll finish this morning. I want to read to you a story from Mark chapter 10, and I want to offer you an example of a person who experienced physically what you and I can experience spiritually if we'll simply cry out for mercy. Mark 10, 46, Jesus and his disciples are walking and they came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho on the other side with Jesus and his disciples and a great crowd who was following them, Bar Timaeus, which just means the son of Timaeus, which is funny because there it is three words later, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside at a gate outside the city. And when he heard that the big crowd and the person in the middle of the crowd was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, just to yell from his position in the dirt. Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Big, huge throng of people, loud conversation. Everybody's trying to get close enough to Jesus to hear what he's saying. They're probably bringing all of their weirdest questions to him. And here's this guy, well below uh, the, the level of all of their heads as they stand and walk, lying in the dirt, and he begins to shout. He doesn't even know which direction Jesus is from where he is. He can't see. Have mercy on me. And how did the people respond? They rebuked him. Just like a minute ago when I told you that you need to be regularly praying prayers that offer God nothing and cry for mercy, some of you thought, no. No, not, not if you're mature. Not if you're mature in your faith. You don't have to do that. We rebuke people who are willing to actually acknowledge that they have nothing. It's embarrassing for us. Don't bother God with that. Take a little bit of responsibility. Man up, right? They told him to be quiet. It's frustrating to them. Maybe it's getting in their way. They can't hear this Jesus that they came to see. And so they're mad at this guy who needs to get to him. But he just got louder. <laughs> Good for you, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. The epicenter of this crowd of people. They're all trying to make sure they don't get too far ahead or too far behind. And he just stops. Because he heard him. He heard this man's cry. And he turned to him. And he said to the people around him, he said, call to this man, wherever he is, find him. Figure out where he is. And so they did, they called to him, because right now they're going to be really good disciples if Jesus said it. Now he's, now okay, we'll go help the blind guy if that's what you want. And they said to him, hey, it's going to be okay. They were just telling him to shut up, and now they're like, everything's going to be fine, buddy. People are so fickle. Get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, the man sprang to his feet, which I'm just going to guess from having never been blind is not terribly easy if you can't see. He jumps onto his own feet, and he came to Jesus. He probably stumbled to Jesus. He probably bumped into a lot of other people who are now quiet all around him. He's feeling his way. Where is Jesus? Jesus is probably still speaking. Bartimaeus, I'm right here. You're getting closer. Come on, come on. And Jesus said to him, and I imagine it's quiet, just like it is here, just stone dead silence on this road outside Jericho. What do you want me to do for you? A question that I would imagine nobody has ever asked Bartimaeus. They think they know what he wants. He wants a little bit of money. He might use a shoulder to lean on to get back to his house, wherever he lives. But Jesus says, what do you want? And the blind man said, teacher, 
let me recover my sight, please. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Go your way. You can go. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, Mark's favorite word in the Gospel of Mark, the man recovered his sight, and he followed Jesus. That's the point. That's what's amazing about this, is Jesus says, you can go your way. And as soon as the man is healed, he just gets right in line behind the Christ. His life is so totally changed. And frankly, if we can be honest, he has no other way to go. What life is waiting on him? What career has he built where he just needed a little bit of help from Jesus and things would work out better? No, he was blind. And I don't think we really know what that's like. I think we have so little empathy in our culture that we've probably never really imagined what it's like to be blind, blind and to live in a place and a society built for people who can see. Timaeus' son was not born without eyes. We often picture blind people as just not kind of having eyes and not having to suffer through the reality of having the organ that makes you see, but it just not working for whatever reason. And maybe if you're like me, and I'm just going to be really honest with you, you've been calloused at times, and you've thought, sure, a person like that can't see, but they can still taste, and they can feel, and they can smell, right? And they can hear. So, like, they can still have a life. We acknowledge that being blind is not good. Certainly, we would never sign up for that if that was an option, but we don't really feel that bad for a blind person's experience. But imagine with me, church, what it means to have eyes, eyes that move but can't see, eyes that can cry but can't see, eyes that have eyelids, eyes that can be burned in the sun, eyes that feel wind and cold and have to blink away snow and rain, to have real eyes and yet not be able to see. We imagine oftentimes the experience of blindness is just like our experience, just with our eyes closed, right? This must be what it's like. Pretty weird. But when I'm done being blind, I can just open my eyes. It's a choice I can make. I can decide to see again because it's a faculty that I've been given. For the blind, their eyes can be open or closed and they'll still see nothing. They can do all the right things with their eyes. They can open them. They can point their pupil at the thing they want to see. They can squint their forehead and their eyebrows and try really hard to focus and they'll still see nothing. And this is why blindness is such a helpful analogy for sin, and this is why Bartimaeus is your professor in prayer. Because if you are spiritually blind, you cannot make yourself see. You can try. You can find a way to blend in. You can wear the dark glasses and lean on somebody else and try to maintain your pride and have nobody else know. But when you find yourself in a moment of inability to change yourself, the prayer that you need to pray that you're going to hate praying is have mercy. Have mercy. I don't, even, I don't even know where you are. I can't even turn myself the right direction right now. And there are going to be people around you who are going to say, God, you have to do it like that. Good grief. But when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, which, if we are honest, happens all the time, we must stop just trying to be better, and we must ask God for mercy. We must, some of us, literally, physically, hit our knees like Moses did and say to God, if I have found favor in your sight, if you love me at all, you have to do this. You're not morally obligated because I know better than you, but I'm not going to get this anywhere else. I can't manufacture this for myself. I need you to make me a person who's always trending toward death to become a person who's living a life, a life that can give, a life that has peace, a life that has hope. Have mercy on me. If we will pray that pride and if we will lay, excuse me, if we'll pray that prayer and lay our pride down, the pride that wants to insulate us from that, we may learn one of the great paradigms of following Jesus. 
If we're not careful, we'll learn from other Christians that Christian maturity means that we ask for mercy from God less and less. But the opposite is actually true. The more that we grow up into Christ, the more we ask him for mercy. The more we admit that we're wrong, the more we fall on our knees and cry out to him. Becoming a believer and following Jesus means I spend less time trying to save face and more time asking Jesus to save me from myself. So we come to God today like Israel came, like Moses came. We need mercy and we need it for two reasons. Some of us need mercy because we need forgiveness. We are wrong and we have wronged other people. And we believe that that's built a barrier that nobody can get over, including God, that's gonna keep us separated from him forever. The right prayer to pray is have mercy, God. I can't justify it, I know I was wrong, I can't take it back, I can't change the past. I hate myself for it, certainly other people hate me for what I've done. Will you have mercy? Will you meet me here? Will you change me and shape me and grow me and draw me in? And then the rest of us need mercy, maybe not because we are wrong, or at least not to that same magnitude, but because of how we've been wronged, because we feel that we're drowning, we feel that we're suffocating, we cannot get our head above water, and we cry for mercy because we just need room to breathe, we need rest. That's what mercy is. Mercy is rest and forgiveness. That's what God promises in this covenant, that he will give rest and he will give forgiveness. And that's what's available to you. Mercy is being brought in close when we deserve to be kicked out forever. Mercy is the space that we need to catch our spiritual breath and it is permission to set down whatever burden is crushing your soul today and to walk away, to leave your blindness with Jesus. Whether it's guilt or shame or fear. Yahweh's covenant in Exodus 34 is a covenant of mercy. Jesus' covenant in John 17 with us is a covenant with, of sinners with, mercy, with sinners of mercy. Regardless of your understanding of covenant theology, here's the bottom line for you. Take a lesson from Bartimaeus. Bring your blindness, bring your damage, bring your idols, bring your wounds, and shout Jesus' name. And what Jesus will say is he'll say, come here, come closer. And then he'll heal you when you reach him. That's what's on the table for you and I today. Our job is to admit defeat, and that's where God's mercy will meet us. I want to pray that for you today. If you would pray with me, I would appreciate that. Father, I think we have grand ideas about ourselves, and we have a real strong tendency to read the Bible and identify with the heroes, <laughs> to tell ourselves that we would be the Peter or the John or the James in Jesus' disciples, when I think probably most of us would be right there with Bartimaeus in the dust literally breathing in the dirt stirred up by the feet of other people who are coming and going, who are living the life that we wish that we had, who have all the things that we're hoping for, maybe the things that even saturate our prayers, God. And yet, for some of us, when you come near, when you, as you said in Mark 1, have brought the kingdom of God close by, we resist. We're afraid. We're too proud. Or we don't believe. And so what I ask today, God, for these men and women is that they would have faith to believe that your mercy is actually available and it doesn't run out. And that we would be bold enough, strong enough to stop ourselves from trying to fix everything on our own. And that we would admit that we've been wrong or we've been wronged and that we would cry out for mercy. Give us the strength to admit that we're weak, God. We love you and we trust you. And I ask that you would do this in our lives this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.